Device Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth. And you know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of... Wait a second right there. Your voice, my voice, the voice. We're talking about voices today. One of my favorite voices of all time was a gentleman I hired many years ago, still works with us. His name is Troy, and he is from Tasmania. And for those of you that don't know where that is, it's right beside Australia. They sound like Australians. Well, my customers had never met him, most of them. So I thought I would have a lot of fun with his voice. I told them all, look, this guy is going to sound like he's from Australia, but trust me, he's from Deep Run, North Carolina, a little town just south of Kinston. And he saw Crocodile Dundee as a kid and was just obsessed with Paul Hogan and learned how to speak Australian. And it's been his shtick ever since. Well, a couple nurses actually believed me, and then Troy had to go back and clean that up and convince them that he was actually from out of the country. I I love doing stuff like that. It was certainly funny uh, to do it with Troy because he was good-natured about it. So loved that voice. I wish I had a voice like that, but I don't. So let's open up this voice thing just a little bit more. It came up in a book that my wife recommended that I read out of her real estate stuff, and it was called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Normally, I wouldn't have picked up a book like that. It's about negotiations, but she caught my ear when she said it was an FBI negotiator because I have a neighbor who is an FBI uh, agent, field agent, and does uh, hostage negotiations and stuff like that. He drives a Hummer H1, so I really want to be his friend. So I've been reading the book, and one of the things that really stuck out was quoting a behavioral economist who said that feeling is a form of thinking. So let's blend a couple of these things together. How does your voice make people feel? How does your voice make people feel? We know that people don't remember most of what you said, but they do remember how you made them feel. Let me give you an example. If I was to call your voicemail right now, how would it make me feel? There's a rep I know who shall remain nameless, but when I call his voicemail, the first thing that I hear is, hello. And immediately in my mind, the clouds are out, they're rolling in, the rain's coming, it's on the way. That's just from listening to his voicemail. How does your voice make people feel? Do you modulate it? Do you change your voice for certain circumstances? Or is it basically one size fits all? Or do you even think about it? For most of my sales career, I can put myself in that latter category. So let's think about your voice just for a second. Let's go back to the book. He mentioned three voices. His playful voice, his late night FM DJ voice, and the assertive take charge voice. Let's go through these one by one. Let's look at the playful voice. I would say that is 90% of at least what I do. That's my voice at home. That's my voice with my kids. That's my voice with the nurses in the lounge, the doctor in the hallway. That's 90% of what I do. It ends the moment that the incision is made in the room. That guy gets shut down. Now, I will tell you this. Some people 
bleed that over and they keep that playful thing going throughout the case. They're joking with the circulator, turning it into more of a fun and games type of thing. And I caution you against that, that you probably shouldn't do that and be thinking about your voice in the room and when to shut the thing off. When they hear you joking around with the circulator from across the room while they're doing the timeout or any number of things, not appropriate. I knew a rep who's no longer with us, ironically, but whenever he would get stressed out, he would laugh. And there was a case that was not going well, and the surgeon turned around to ask him something about it and to basically accuse him of not paying attention, and he responded with laughter. Not a good time for playful voice. I uh, got in a lot of trouble over that. When a lot of phone calls were made, it was just bad. I get stressed just talking about it. It didn't even happen to me. So playful voice needs to have some guardrails on it, right? That incision is made. Late night FM DJ voice comes on. I call it my Mr. Rogers voice. I just watched a documentary on Mr. Rogers, and I was amazed at the granular detail at which this guy presented things. And we're going to take the next few podcasts to open up his life a little bit more. I think there's some amazing things that we can learn about sales from Mr. Rogers. And I want you to think about it just for a minute, how he talked. He had that slow cadence. There wasn't a lot of fat to it. And he was talking in such a way as to project confidence to these children that he was a safe person and that they could be comfortable with him. And I think that likewise, that's what we're trying to project when that incision is made, that we're projecting confidence and safety. Everything is going to be okay. So Mr. Rogers, that needs to be your voice once that incision is made. Playful can happen when the closure begins, as being playful at the wrong time can make people feel like you are not paying attention and you don't take your job seriously. And since we know that feeling is a form of thinking, they will think that about you and believe it, even if it's not true. See how all this works? So what's the last voice, the assertive voice, the take charge voice, the hostage negotiation voice? I am telling you, that voice rarely ever gets used, and you have to be super careful bringing that one out, especially if you're covering a case for another rep. You've got to earn your way. You have to have an invitation to that party, or you're going to get thrown out of that party. Uh, You have to really know when it's okay. I've had to use that voice a couple times in my career when things were really going sideways, and a surgeon was just looking to me to to kind of help as best I could within the confines of being just a rep, but just being able to, to help him or her get through a challenging situation. But that is rare, rare. And I have seen reps get in trouble over the years being assertive when they had no business being assertive and they weren't invited to be assertive because people will push back if you do that. Be thinking about your voice. Don't just be who you are all the time in all situations and all scenarios. Think about it. What voice am I projecting? Is it appropriate for that particular circumstance? And don't think about it just in terms of work. What am I doing when I go home and when I'm around people that are outside of work? What is that voice projecting? How is it making people feel? When I'm talking to my kids, am I projecting security? Am I projecting confidence? Lastly, your body language with your voice work hand in hand. So if you're a rep that's kind of bouncing around the room and 
you're you're not just sitting there with your arms folded calmly. You can have a Mr. Rogers voice down, but if you're moving around and you're jumpy and you're fidgety and you're constantly checking your phone, you can actually sabotage your effort to project that confidence. So be thinking about, it's like a wine pairing, right? How are you pairing your physical with your vocal? You want them to work hand in hand together and complement each other. Speaking of voices, my second favorite voice in the world is English. And I'll never forget the time that I fell in love with that. We, my wife and I went to an action-adventure movie many, many, many years ago, and I was dragging her to yet another movie that involved car chases and things getting blown up, and the movie was sold out, and we had to go see The Remains of the Day because it was the only movie that still had seats available. And I heard Emma Thompson talk, and I just fell in love with that voice. I fell in love with movies like that, as a matter of fact. It was kind of bizarre, but great movie. And ever since then, I just love hearing people talk from England. Today, we have a very special guest from England. He's currently living in France. His name is Dr. Martin Pickford, and I have been following his content on LinkedIn for some time. I always enjoy what he has to say. Sometimes he tells me things that challenge me, and that's good. I always want to be reflective over what I think and always welcome people that can help me re-examine where I am on any particular issue, especially in this career called medical device. So open up your ears to the wonderful dulcet tones of Dr. Martin Pickford. Hi. I am so thankful to have you on the show. I've been following you on LinkedIn for quite some time. Tell me about uh, tell me about your life. I want to find out what you've done and your your connection with medical device over the years. Just tell me a little bit about your career. Okay. Well, I, I, I started off, I did my university, I studied chemistry. And then I, I did a PhD in chemistry as well, but decided I didn't really want to go into academia or teaching. So I got, I got a job as a medical rep. And, and the, the main reason at that time was that it gave me a car, which I couldn't afford up until then. And it was, I, I went to work for American, they were called American Edwards at the time, but they're now called Edwards Vice Sciences. So I started off as a salesman selling heart valves and catheters and that sort of thing for cardiovascular. And then I moved to be the sales and marketing director of Zimmer in the UK. And I did that job for about seven years with a sales force of about 20, um, selling hips and knees, basically. Um, we did have trauma and spinal in the line, but they there were a lot of local companies that we were in competition for plates and screws. Um, and then I was the marketing director for Europe. I then ran Zimmer France for a couple of years, and then I was vice president Europe. So I, I, I was the man in the corner office for Zimmer for a couple of years, and um, and then decided really I was I was offered a job in Warsaw, Indiana. And I think most people who've been to Warsaw, Indiana, might say, no, I'm not all that keen. And also my daughters were in the latter stages of their education and it wasn't the time to uh, uh, stay in, you know, to move to the US. So I um, spent a couple of years with a company called Corin, 
was still around, that had been set up, actually, by my first boss at Zimmer. Um, and we, our main claim to fame was that Corin was the first company in the world to sell a metal-on-metal resurfacing prosthesis. Um, I then left them because I had a, an idea with a friend of mine for a, an antibacterial coating based upon silver technology. And we borrowed a lot of money from the VCs and the, the, uh, the angel capitalists in the UK and set up a company called Accentus Medical. Um, one of the things that we, we did apart from that also was that we helped set up the UK National Joint Registry back in the early 2000s. And I carried on doing that with a number of other things. I started towards the end of my career moving a little bit from industry into the regulatory. Um, I helped not only with the National Joint Registry, but with some other benchmarking, um, kite-marking systems that one of them is called ODET, which is quite well-known around the world. And in fact, I still sit on the ODET committee. But apart from that, I'm retired and living graciously in France. Why has it been such a, a, a long journey to get a joint registry in North America? A that's a difficult question. We, when, when, when Charlie first started selling his prosthesis in the UK back in the, the late 60s, he suggested that there should be a joint registry in the UK. And to be honest with you, the only reason that it never took off was that nobody really thought that the surgeons would buy in and that it would start a war, you know, figuratively anyway, between the government and the surgical community. And then we had some very well-publicized failures, mainly of hips in the UK. And there was one especially called the, the, the Capital Hip, which was 3M were, were the manufacturers. They were still making implants in those days. And it was a charmly, kind of a charmly copy, but they added a lot of fancy bits to it. It had titanium nitride-coated heads and things like that. And uh, it produced a 13% revision rate at three years. And it was mentioned in Parliament. And the, and the government said, well, what kind of research had been done into this before it was put into human beings? And the truth of the answer was not a lot, really. Maybe the inventor surgeon had put in a few, but it had been CE marked. So it was free for general sale in Europe. The politicians didn't like that idea, and, and one of them mentioned that there could be a joint registry in the UK. The surgeons were not really for it, but they'd taken a lot of bad press for using things that weren't really that well controlled or, you know, they'd been launched to the market too quickly. So they went along with it, and it came out for tender. The company that I was working for... Um, volunteered really to do the the implant um, library side of it if you like um, and we we had a big IT um, input from another company and we became the first private contractors for it and the take up in the first year was about 50% and the government 
stepped in and said, we can't accept that. We want, you know, statistically we need 95% for it to mean anything. We're going to make it compulsory. And the surgeons went along with it. So that, you know, that was the history. You know, from the first talk of a registry in the UK, it took 30 years, really, to, to, for it to take off. You know, the first one was in Sweden, as I'm sure you know, in 1978 that started. But the, the UK was the first big market to actually have a registry that worked. And it's now up to, well, now will be the 18th year of it. Um, it's got nearly 5 million hips and knees on its database. And because it's compulsory, um, it works. Now, in the States, I know there are a lot of smaller registries... Why there has been, and, and I know that certain European medics who had been very big in the Swedish registry went to work in Chicago, people like Heinrich Malkow and, and, and others, with a view to helping set up the registry. But we still don't see it, and I really don't quite understand why, to be honest. Maybe there's just a lot of smaller registries and people have got ownership of those and don't want to share their data. I had a great conversation the other day with um, Dr. Wayne Paprosky and we were just taking a trip down memory lane about the the Charlie Ings of the world and the Hungerfords and it, it was just a great a great uh, a great walk down the Hall of Fame of orthopedics. Who were the Hall of Fame on in the European theater? that really helped move the dial on, on the implant side? Well, it's funny that you say that. Because I worked for Zimmer, most of the, the influences that I came across were the ones that you would know well. You know, on the, on the, the knee side, it, it, it was the, the insoles and the bursteins, and, and that's what paid my mortgage for many years until Miller came along. Um, and on the hip side, it was Harris and Eng and Hungerford. And, but we couldn't sell hips in the UK, from the, really, that were made in America because of the European market. And the, the, the European market was pretty much dominated by the Swiss and the, the Italians and, to a certain extent, the French. So the, 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 the names that are, that are known are the, the Muller, the Zweimuller, the Spatorno, the Karai prosthesis, which was um, in, uh, invented originally in Toulouse in France. And they still have. Um, you, you don't see, you know, it, it, it's a little bit fragmented. In certain countries like Spain, the market is almost all American for hips. I think that globally the market is pretty much all American for knees anyway. But for hips, there are a lot of regional players, and they still do well. And that is, that is why Depew, which is Thackeray, who were the original manufacturers of, uh, of the um, Charnley, that's why Stryker bought Halmedica, because they had the Exeter prosthesis. And so on. So, you know, there are a lot of European products now which are very commonly used in America, but that's because of acquisitions. That Karai was just a genius stem. I mean, everybody has a flavor of that stem now. It's just done so well yep. and has really stood the test of time. 
it's funny how things work out because I was part of, I went, the, 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 the original manufacturer of the Karai was a French company called Londrigerie, which was still owned by the family um, in, in a city called Chaumont, about 100 miles southeast of Paris. And I went um, there with some, some American bankers and venture capitalists to do a, a tour of Londrigerie with a view to Zimmer buying that product. But it became a little bit of a, a market, and and uh, uh, Depew got it, and it and it has been. You know that that particular purchase turned Depew's business around completely. When I first came into it, you know, Depew were the aging company that were pretty much disappearing, and were in Warsaw, Indiana, were very much second to to, to Zimmer, and, and probably no more powerful than Burnett were at the time, but it really changed it. Charlie Ng transformed that company to me, at least on the American side. His presentations at the meetings just really brought a lot of people along. Yeah, I can remember, I can remember going to the Harvard Hit course, you know, which was a, a, an advert for Bill, really, and in, in, in a lot of ways, what Bill Harris was promoting at the time, and he, he invited Charlie Ng along. And they did a double header. He was he was talking about the the Harris Galante and the, the Central Line, and and Charlie Eng was talking talking about osteolysis and that they were, and all the bone was growing around the tip of the prosthesis and there was terrible resorption etc. With with Charlie Eng's product, and he turned around to Bill because they they had podia either side of the stage, and said to him. Bill, I've never had a patient come into my office complaining about his osteolysis. And Bill just didn't know what to say. So you, you, he was so funny. He was so funny. So walk me through what is it like to sell in the European theater? Is it like it is here? You're still selling to the surgeon? Is it to a system? How does that work? I haven't been a, you know, a direct salesman for many years now, but... When when I started, you were very very much selling to the surgeon, and that became a real problem for hospitals. I'm talking about the UK now because that's where most of my selling was done. That led to a real problem because if you had, you know, there were situations where you have ten hip surgeons in the in the in the hospital with fifteen different hip prostheses. And the prices were going up. The, the, the cost of consigning to hospitals, especially the instrumentation, started becoming prohibitive. You just couldn't do it. You know, we worked out. Unless somebody was doing 50 to 100 knees a year, it was not worth putting a set of instruments into the hospital. And very few surgeons were. So we had to figure out better ways of doing it. And, and Zimmer UK were the first people ever to, to, to look at what we call joint line, which was that the hospital would ring up a couple of days before the operation and we would send the instruments by train or whatever to the local station to be picked up by the rep and the rep would deliver them the night before the operation. You know, it's quite standard now, but it was revolutionary at the time. Um, and then... The, the, the central purchasing people in hospitals 
started getting even tougher and saying to the surgeon groups there, we think that we should have no more than five hip stems in the hospital. You know, we're not going to tell you which ones it should be, but you better do it. The surgeons basically told the companies, well, you better reduce your prices, so otherwise you're not going to get the contract. It's becoming out of my hands. That is pretty much like it is today. There's a, and I think that pretty much goes for Europe. We haven't got anything quite as tight as you have in the U.S. where you've got preferred vendors who basically you say there's only two orthopedic companies in the hospital. It doesn't work like that. But it is a lot tougher than it used to be. And there were always the surgeries that you knew would change prostheses regularly because, quite frankly, they got bored with doing the same operation time after time and wanted to do something new. That doesn't happen so much now. It's a much longer process to get anybody to change. And I, and I, and I think with the, the thing that is helping that is now that there is so much registry data, everybody knows what works. And consequently now, in Europe, I don't know, I can't talk for the States, everybody is promoting the same thing. They're promoting a Karai copy, an Exeter copy, um, they're promoting a mini stem. There's still some metal-on-metal um, metal resurfacing in younger males and, and the taper lock copies. And every company has got the same thing. Um, the prices are going through the floor and, it, and, and the sales forces and the companies are now not so interested in the prostheses, all they're interested in is computers and patient-specific implants and things like that. So see, there's a lot of changes going on, and some of them are very expensive changes. I'm not sure that they will actually prove themselves to be cost-beneficial. I think we reached the top of the diminishing marginal returns curve on the implant side years ago. Now everybody's implants are looking very similar and performing. If, the, if put incorrectly, most of the implants out there are performing well. So the other frontier now is, is how we put it in and robotics. Uh, I've seen some of your comments on LinkedIn about robotics. Tell me, uh, tell me what your thoughts are on that technology. I don't think it will be possible for robots to improve implant longevity. Because if you look at the UK National Joint Registry now, hips and knees at 15 years, the good ones are providing 97, 98% survivorship. And that isn't with the inventor surgeons and the, the high volume users. That's the average of everybody. So I don't know. I, 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 think, I think robots will have a place in joint replacement, but eventually it will be for patients with rather peculiar anatomies where rather than just making straight cuts with a saw blade, it would make much more sense to have a bone mill and actually, you know, have a, a true custom prosthesis. Patients with cancer who've had great lumps of bone removed and, and really do need a custom prosthesis, I think in those cases, you know, being able to use a bone mill rather than a saw blade would have its place and would improve outcomes. So I'm not, I'm not condemning 
robots per se. It's just I don't think 99% of patients need a robot to do their surgery. Can you imagine John Insull using a robot? Uh, no. It's understandable, you know, and it's the it puts up the barriers of entry to the market as well because you need some resources to invent one of those babies, and you know the only and none of them really have been able to do it. All of them have acquired the technology from somebody else. Now that's not the first time that that happens. You know that has happened with many many successful technologies going back as far as the Exeter and the Karai that we've already spoken about. You know, Mako and Zimmer's, Zimmer's Rosa robot is a, a French um, design and still, and they still run out of France. It's going to be really interesting to see how the current pandemic is going to affect capital purchases for the next 12 months. Yeah. Uh, the longer this goes on and yeah, uh, these elective cases that are the lifeblood of the hospitals and providing finances, uh, I think it's yeah. going to change that landscape. Well, not only in, not only in this. My, my, my son-in-law works for Airbus Industries, and uh, in the UK they make the wings for the, the Airbuses, and, uh, and the fuselages and engines are made in, in France and in Switzerland. They've stopped producing planes because nobody's got any orders for planes, and they're actually starting making ventilators at the moment in the UK because the government didn't have enough. And I know, I think it's, it's difficult to know exactly what's going to happen with the um, implants, though. My, my old company, of which I'm still a shareholder, as well as coming up with silver coatings, um, does plasma spraying of titanium metal and HA. And I rang up the CEO the other day to see how my shareholding was doing, because I thought people would have stopped. And he told me that a lot of the orthopedic manufacturers, especially in the States, are even stocking up at the moment in case there's a shortage afterwards. Uh, one thing I, I wanted to ask you about your career was the the reps that you've seen come in and out of your door over all those years. And, uh, you know, this is primarily a rep-centered audience. Uh, what 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 really distinguished the really great reps in your mind over your tenure? It's always been service, in my opinion. Um, I know when I, when I first started, we used to do a hell of a job on the sales force to make sure they understood their features and benefits and that you were there to solve a problem, not to sell a feature. And they did that. But the ones that, that really did well were the ones that went an extra mile. I used to, I used to dread going out with them because, as I said, I had 20 of them with some regional managers between me and them. But I used to try and make sure I got out with them at least once once every six months, once every nine months. And there were guys that would, at 10 o'clock at night, would still be delivering instruments to a hospital that were going to be used the following morning at 7.30, and they were going to commute 50 to 100 miles to go home and be back there for 7 o'clock to get scrubbed up. And... 
I think it's still pretty much that way. It's 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 the service related part of it, and I think they they do need to have a very high level of knowledge and to have been around a little bit a while maybe and know the history of orthopedics. It's basic knowledge, knowledge around the subject, knowing knowing their place, knowing that they are a servant of the team, but never try and cross that line and become part of the team because that's not your place. And just genuinely generally be there when you're needed. That's it, really. And that's a tall order. It is. It is. But I can remember I had, when, when I was the, the, the CEO, I had four, we, we, we paid purely on commission, um, and the four highest people in, earning people in the company were the sales force. And by God, did they work for it. You know, when, when you looked at the number of hours they put in for the amount of, of pounds or dollars that they got back, they deserved it. And I used to enjoy signing their paychecks. And we used to give out rings at the end of every, every year. We copied that very much from the Super Bowl. And uh, the top three performing reps got these gold rings with Z on in diamonds across the across the ring and by god did they deserve it i have a president's club ring that that kind of looks like that <laughs> i don't even know if i don't know if we're still doing those particular rings anymore but i swear it looks just like a super bowl ring and the only time you can really wear it is to sales meetings right yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> absolutely uh, so what do you do in these days oh, what's what um, you your time well, I still si- I'm still sitting on a UK committee called the ODEP committee, which look at benchmarks. So people, the companies submit data, and these days it's mostly registry data, and they get a grading system based upon the, the revision rate and how many years the product has been on the market. So if it's got a 15A, it means that at 15 years, it's one of the best-performing implants. And um, we sit two or three times a year. Um, and it started off just being used in the UK. Um, we now, I'm, we, I noticed the website a couple of months ago had visits from 53 countries. Um, it's becoming well-known in the States. Um and the, the FDA are very much aware of it. The, the Germans are already using it. The Italians, the Australians, the Swedes are all using the ODET system. And, and that is because just getting a CE mark before the product is launched is no guarantee that it's going to be good and should only be used in small quantities until it's got at least three years of data and people can start to use it more. But we're trying to encourage the people to use the products that have got a 15 years of A grade. And it's really taken off. And it's great for me because I know the history. So when I see these products coming onto the market, 
I know whether there's been something like it before. And so I, I, I really enjoy it, actually. So that's what I do. But it's a, it only takes, takes about one or two days a month and a few conference calls. Apart from that, I'm a grandfather and enjoying retirement in La Belle France and trying to learn the language. I watch the Tour de France every year for no other reason than the scenery there. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it, it is. It, it, it really, this country has got every type of scenery you can imagine in a much smaller area than the United States. Do you know what I mean? It's got, well, we haven't got any deserts, but apart from that, we have got, you know, 14,000 foot high mountains, um, big industrial areas, big cities, beautiful cities. I'm, I'm very proud to live here, and I've actually got French nationality now, so I can... I, I can stay here forever. They're thinking, the, the latest, somebody said, well, why can't we run the Tour de France but with no spectators? Can you imagine that? That would not be the same at all. Half of the fun of it is seeing these just crazy people in the streets and ch chasing the riders and, and yep. acting acting foolish. Uh, I, I'm I know. watching that as well. Yeah. Well, the thing, the, the thing in France at the moment, they, 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 you still, because I'm English, they are still saying to me, well, you guys have dominated it for the last year. Come on, you can tell me. You, they must be taking drugs, aren't they? And uh, so uh, I don't know whether there still is in that sport. I don't know. But uh, I've enjoyed as an Englishman. I've enjoyed watching the last five or six of them. There's always that gentleman that dresses up like the devil with a pitchfork who chases the riders. He yep. In the, yes, in the Alps. He's a perennial favorite. I, I always look forward <laughs> to seeing him. <laughs> so, if I see him, I'll so tell put him. On your, uh, put on your future cap. I love your perspective, by the way. I mean, you, I love, love hanging out with the guys that have been around this business a long time. It's just so, so refreshing to talk about where it's come from. Tell me where you think it. Tell me where you think it's going. That's interesting. I, I see no immediate. Um, requirement or no, no promise of being able to remove the metal from the patient. I still think there's going to be joint replacement for the next 30 or 40 years, at least. I can't, I, I see no cures for arthritis um, at the moment. So um, I think it's pretty much the joint replacement is going to stay the same. I think around the edges there might be better performing meniscal replacements and ACL replacements and that sort of thing that can use slightly more humanoid type implants. So I, I hope that comes along. I've seen quite a few lately meniscal implants coming onto the market. Um, I hope as a shareholder of my old company that antibacterial technologies become more Popular. Well, it's not popular. Isn't the word the, the 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 need is there, and the clinicians would love to have the silver coatings, etc., and other types of of coating on their implants. But the problem is, the regulators say, "Well, that's a medicine. That's not a device. We're not quite sure how to handle that." Now, 
my argument is that silver is a metal, not not a medicine. Um, and that we need a slightly a change in mind of the regulators for that to happen. But there is still, even in the, the UK Joint Registry, a, a, a nub of resistant infections. And that normally, you know, a very high percentage now of the revisions in, in our registry, in the UK, sorry, are, are for um, revision, uh, revision for infection or things like periprosthetic fractures, but nothing really to do with the implant. You don't get a lot of implant loosening these days. So I, I, I would like to see antibacterial um, technology coming in and, and, uh, and soft tissue implants. And I see, uh, I see, uh, I see that that might happen. The one area I don't know very much about, I will admit, is spinal. And there seems to be a, you know, a revolution going on in spinal like we had in hips and knees 20, 25 years ago. I, I'm just inventing things as you're talking, which is kind of the way my brain works. But what about silver impregnated cement? Yeah, you could do. Um, the, 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 the only problem, if you put too much silver in, the, the patient will go blue. Um, you don't want huge amounts of silver. That's why the technology that, that I helped invent doesn't use silver metal. It uses a salt of silver, and it's there in the quantities of micrograms per square centimeter of the implant surface. Um, but, yeah, why not put silver in, in, into bone cement? I, I, I bet you that if we looked, we'd find several people out there are thinking of doing it well i'm hopeful you stay safe in the midst of all this and uh just yeah and you and to all of your colleagues and and all americans really because you, you know there's more of you than there are of most so you're gonna be hard hit i really appreciate you being on the show today dr pickford great stuff and um i wish you the best thank you very much indeed I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Martin Pickford as much as I did. That was a lot of fun. I know if I had his voice, my sales would go up 15% overnight. People would look for excuses to bring me into the OR and into their offices to talk to them. Please give us an in-service. You know, Dr. Pickford has a voice, not just a cool English voice, but a voice, a platform to speak from, and that's what we all strive for in sales, that we have that platform, and it comes from a lot of different things. Only one small component is the how we talk, but what we say, we're going to open that up in episodes to come. So I hope this time next week you are all in elective cases and getting a chance to practice this stuff, practice your playful voice, know when to shut it off, practice that late night FM DJ voice. Practice that assertive voice, but probably not, right? I hope you all have a wonderful week. As always, I'm glad to have you here as part of the conversation. So let's all be positive, be strong, be smart, and most importantly, be safe. Device Nation. 